Welcome to EdTech Adventures. Join us as we explore the role of technology, STEM, and creative play in education. With expert guests, we'll discover how learning is always an adventure. From a Harvard class to a mission on Mars, Christine Reach has collected and analyzed data with a focus on meaningful iteration. Today, she'll share the evaluation strategies she's used and how they have helped her bring more equity to data science. Christine Reach, PhD, is the CEO of Knowledgy, a nonprofit research organization with a mission to produce practical social science for a better world. Prior to Knowledgy, Christine worked at the Boston Museum of Science for over 25 years, serving in a variety of leadership positions, including the founding director of the museum's research and evaluation department, one of the largest of its kind in the world, and most recently as the Jane and Payson Swafield Chief Learning Officer. In addition, Dr. Reach is an adjunct lecturer for education in the learning design, innovation, and technology program at the Harvard University Graduate School of Education. Thanks so much for joining our podcast, Christine. Thank you for inviting me. I like to start at the beginning of everyone's journey. Could you describe a memorable education experience that you've had as a student? What a fantastic question. I'm not going to start exactly at the beginning, but I think I'll start near the end of my educational journey when I was an undergraduate studying engineering. I had always grown up as a girl who loved math and science and always won the science fair awards in my school and was compelled to keep investigating scientific questions. And you can imagine how surprised I was when I became an undergraduate and I found I hated engineering and completely dismayed, wanted to quit. I remember wanting to drop one of the courses I felt was difficult. My then boyfriend, now husband at the time was like, why are you going to quit? You're getting a better grade than me. But I felt so awful about the grades I was getting. I felt lost, I felt unmotivated. It just didn't feel like engineering was for me. The remarkable thing that happened is I, I stayed with engineering for a variety of reasons, but by junior year, there's this kind of sea change that happened to me. And I started to like engineering again. I started to be excited to be taking the classes. And what happened during that junior year is I started to take the classes that were about impact and kind of the role for social good that engineering could play. So I was taking classes on solid waste engineering or another course on biological engineering where we were designing toys for children with disabilities and brewing beer and learning how to run kidney dialysis machines. And all of it kind of reinvigorated my love of engineering. What I found out years later is that I was not alone in terms of being a woman who was unhappy with engineering, that a lot of women get dismayed, you know, the imposter syndrome sets in when we start getting low grades. And at, at my university, everything was graded on a curve. So if you were an average student, you were getting a C, which at a top rate university, you know, that's the bulk of the students. And so that was very negative for me as an experience. And a lot of the courses were designed to be weed out. And so they wouldn't focus in on that social impact. And all those negative experiences impacted me. Well, in a good way, I learned what it was like to fail and then to later succeed and to kind of push through failure, which was positive. But I also learned the negative impacts of that failure and the negative impacts of being in an experience where it wasn't designed for me. And that's something that's really stuck with me. Right, because kudos for you for persisting, but I bet you for every student who persisted when they were frustrated and disappointed, we probably lost, you know, 10 other women who were interested in the field, right? 
Yes, there's so many studies around why women drop out of engineering, and particularly in this time period, there were a lot of programs that believed it was about weeding out students. But what they were doing is they were weeding out based on the design of the experience, not based on who was going to be a strong contributor to engineering later on. And so we missed out on a lot of diversity in terms of who went into engineering and who went into science during that time period. And unfortunately, this type of thinking and this type of design still persists in many universities today. Right. And it's part of our work, you and I, to sort of transform that. That's what got me into education is like the focusing on the why and getting kids excited about why they should learn about a topic. For you, could you share how you then became interested? You studied engineering, how you became interested in the world of education? Yes. As an undergraduate, I took a course in science communication with a professor, Bruce Lewinstein, who is still involved in science communication today. And I've crossed paths with him many times through the years. I keep crediting him with my career. And I became really interested in the role of science communication and how what role that can play in the social good. And so that was the beginning of my interest. The other thing that happened is I started volunteering at the Museum of Science on weekends. And I just loved educating visitors about science. I loved the looks on children's faces when they would touch. We had a sheep's heart and lung that was real that we would hook up so that you could inflate it and see what it looks like when your lungs expand and watching children's faces when that would happen, talking about you know, the eye, and we would actually dissect a cow's eye. And what are these different parts? And how do we notice those parts in our own eyes? Those were exciting moments for me. So I ended up quitting my day job and started working at the Museum of Science, which I never expected to be there as long as I was. But the wonderful thing for me is that one of my early positions at the museum that I was paid for was in exhibit planning. And I was evaluating the exhibits and looking at small changes in the design and how we could create a better exhibit through those small changes. And that's when I really fell in love with education. And that's when I kind of linked together this early experience of those feelings of failure in engineering and seeing that small changes in a design had a big, huge impact in terms of who was learning and what people were learning in a museum environment. And that's where I became interested in education, particularly around the design of learning experiences. And that's still what excites me today. That is just so exciting. One of my favorite science museums here in, in the San Francisco Bay Area is Exploratorium. And I would just go as an adult to, to examine how they made these exhibits. Now, you're saying like one of your roles, you were testing out and iterating on these exhibits. And we want to talk about data science. So part of that process, how did data and formative evaluation look like when you were iterating on these exhibits and iterating on these projects at the Museum of Science? Science museums are informal learning contexts. And so one of the, I think, advantages that we have is that as we're designing our learning experiences, we know that it is up to us to design an experience that people are going to want to engage in, that they do engage in, and that it's going to be kind of the design is going to facilitate learning. We can't rely on our own kind of power of persuasion. And so in order to do that, and in order to make it work for the very large audience that science museums attract, you have to involve users in that design process. So the benefit is that at the Museum of Science, we would get you know, over a million visitors a year. So you actually have over a million possible test subjects for any exhibit that you're working on. So we would bring out exhibits that are in development, prototypes made out of cardboard, plywood, and observe people using them interview them, and then quickly make and iterate changes. And so those are kind of the 
early stages of evaluation when you're looking at museum learning. The other thing that we have as an advantage is the large number of people that are going through. And because people can self-select whether or not to engage, it's kind of like learning analytics in computer games, which is that we can look at where people are going within an exhibit context. So right, so learning analytics, you can see where people are going within your game. We would actually do ant trails and follow visitors around to see which exhibits they're stopping at, which ones they weren't. And it gives you a clue, just like learning analytics do, it gives you a clue of what people were learning and what they weren't learning, but based on where they're going. Because if they didn't use something, then there's no learning to be had. So you can actually say, okay, people can't learn these concepts because they're not going to it. But you could look at where the opportunities for learning were based on how much time people are spending in different sections of an exhibition. So that's something that's unique to science museum context in terms of gathering data and large data sets that I think translates over to learning analytics and looking at it in an ed tech context. We definitely go through that too. You were right at Code Combat. We design these games and we have a lot of analytics. It's safe data. We protect the privacy of the kids who are using it, but we're also, like you said, looking at where are they dropping off, right? Where are they lingering? Things like that. But it's so cool to be able to physically literally see them lingering at an exhibit. So thinking about that, thinking about learning analytics and data science, what do people often miss when they begin evaluating learning experiences when they use data, right? Whether it's a game, a learning game, like you said, or whether it's an exhibit in a museum. I think people start with trying to look at what are people learning, but they often miss looking at what opportunities are afforded for learning and where are people attracted. Then again, this is something that I think in an informal learning context, we've never been able to take for granted. We never have to take for granted in an informal learning context that people will just use something because we told them to. We have to make it fun. We have to make it engaging. And so we spend a lot of time looking at that. I think in formal learning context, sometimes it's assumed that students will do it because they're told, but that doesn't mean they're going to do it with the same level of enthusiasm and they'll miss part of that learning. So I think one thing people often forget to look at is the attraction and the engagement and how much fun things are and how much it's motivating people to keep wanting to engage. And so they just look at the end outcome of the learning. But I think you need to look at those things in the beginning first, because that'll give you a strong indication of where learning can be had later on. And then who do you look at when you're considering the people that you want to test, right? Like the grade range, the gender, how do you consider all of that when you're evaluating learning experiences? So the disadvantage that museums have always had is that large number of subjects. So it's so easy to just evaluate with who's coming because you need data quickly. You just go with who's there. And what that means is that you end up creating a reinforcing feedback loop where you design for the audience that's there. They give you feedback and then you have an even better experience for the audience that's there. And you can very easily ignore who's not coming. And you can also create an experience where even if you did find new ways to kind of market or attract people to come when they arrive, it doesn't feel like it's a learning experience for them. So one of the key things that you would do is find partner organizations that could help us to work with and identify audiences to bring in. And so then we are very intentional about, okay, this is an audience that isn't currently coming to the museum, but we really want to reach out to them. We did that a lot around people with disabilities. We've been doing it lately with culturally responsiveness. And 
inviting in the audience as a group so that they feel like their community is there, their community is represented rather than as individuals to really help inform the design. What my experiences at Harvard have taught me is that museums are not alone. And in fact, many other ed tech organizations who they test with are the people that they have contacts with and relationships with already. And they are also creating those reinforcing feedback groups. So if you don't intentionally look at who's not included in who you're testing with, you're then just going to be creating experiences that work for your existing audience. Forming those relationships, I think, is harder for ed tech, at least in the Science Museum, we could offer a free visit, we could offer a day for that community to celebrate. But I think EdTech has a lot to do to think about what can you offer those communities? What can you provide them with that's valuable and meaningful for them, not just valuable and meaningful for you? And finding ways to identify that and then create those relationships that enable you to design for a broader audience is really important. Right. And I'm literally in the middle of this because we're designing a game for Roblox and tomorrow I'm going to a play testing site. And it took a lot of time to gain the trust of the educator and the kids to allow us to come and ask some questions and have them play our game. And you're touching upon this piece of like where you're focusing on groups that aren't already engaged at the museum. And we're trying to do the same thing. And that ties closely to this term of data equity. So What does the term data equity mean in your line of work? For example, at the Museum of Science, and I also know that you worked recently on a Roblox game with the Museum of Science. How did data equity look like when you were working on projects like this? I think data equity is, you know, first kind of starting with definitions and making sure you have the data that you need to make equity-based decisions. And so if you don't have representation in your data and, and you're not paying attention to who is represented and who's not represented, then again, you can just end up designing for who's there as opposed to designing for that broader spectrum of users. I think that it's really important to pay attention to who you want to gather data from from the outset. So in our Museum of Science Roblox theme, One of the first things that we did is express that we wanted the game to be inclusive of people with disabilities. We wanted, you know, kids who are blind, kids who are deaf, you know, adults who have limited mobility and limited dexterity, we wanted them to be able to play the game as well. And while we had many connections, again, with community groups from the Museum of Science standpoint in our exhibitry, we didn't have as many connections with the gaming community. So we partnered with a group called Able Gamers that enabled us to receive their expert feedback as gamers with disabilities on ways to make the game better. And for me, that's really important. You know, the first step in data equity is kind of nothing about us without us. And so they enabled us to have that that entry in. But I, I think it's important that we don't stop there and that we're always looking about how we push the boundaries of, of who's included. Right. And how early do you start working with a group like Able Gamers when you're developing a game? Is it at the late stage where you're like, hey, I've got most of the game done? How early do you start? I think it's really important to start at the very beginning. And what we've learned from years of developing universally designed exhibits is that you have to think about the design of the learning experience from a universal design standpoint at the very beginning. I think the same is true when you're designing for culturally responsive that you can make a mistake even in your early conceptualization that then limits who is able to participate. So an example is the science behind Pixar exhibition that we developed, which is an internationally touring exhibition, fantastic from an equity uh, 
between boys and girls, women and men, also really strong when it comes to equity for many different disability groups. But the one group that I never felt like we fully included to the extent that we could have were visitors who were blind, because we focused in on the development of the movie making from a visual computer simulation standpoint. We didn't focus in on what the films sounded like. And so if we had thought about the technology behind the sound of the film, in addition to the technology behind the imagery of the film, then we would have had a broader, more inclusive exhibition. It's those small, tiny changes that make a big difference. Now, what we did do is, even though we had conceptualized it, you know, too narrowly, we did along the way involve people who are blind in the development of the exhibition. And, and so we we're able to make small changes along the way, such as one of the things we heard from the audience who's blind is that they always wondered what the characters in the Pixar films looked like. And so we included cast models of many of the different characters in the films so that they could experience these characters in a new way that they didn't normally have access to. That is amazing. What a great idea. And it, to me, I'm just hearing over and over again, like a good part of it is just listening, right? Finding that audience who's being left out and listening to what they need. Yeah, my favorite technique for creating more inclusive learning experiences is being a participant observer, right? So it's something from the field of anthropology and an ethnographic technique of kind of going in and you're experiencing the world. And I can never be someone who experiences the museum as if I was blind. But what I can do is I can experience the museum. I can experience a Roblox game as if I'm playing and socializing with someone who's blind. And so I recently did this with our own game with my son and his friends where I was doing a playtesting session and I went in and I was playing the game with them. Now I had an observation protocol. I knew what I was trying to look for. I knew what kind of questions to ask and probe along the way, but by co-playing with, you know, nine and 10 year olds, I was able to experience the game in a very different way than if I had just kind of asked them as an interviewer. And the same is true from an equity standpoint, that when I enable people to kind of show me what their museum experience is like or what their gaming experience is like, by being their social companion, I learn a lot more than if I was just being a formal interviewer. I love that because then it makes the experience collaborative and they're more willing to share, right? Versus feel like they're being interviewed. Right, exactly. You know, one of my favorite experiences with Roblox is playing with one of my son's friends who's, who's a girl and she did not like the way her test avatar looked as we were entering into the game. And she was very upset and didn't want to play just because she didn't like the way her test avatar looked. And it reminded me of what it felt like to be a nine-year-old girl and how important it was for me, how I looked when I was playing, you know, back then it was, you know, playing tag on the street or, you know, running around the neighborhood. But for her, that was really important. And it's an ask because I was co-playing with her because we were playing alongside one another. It was something I experienced that I don't think she would have told a researcher. Yeah. It makes it more intimate. Now, this sounds like a lot of extra work and you and I know how much work it takes. Like me just getting to an Oakland site to work with 14 kids was like over a month of conversation and, and build up. So why should people care about data equity? Why should they spend this extra time and effort to further this cause? Well, first I would say it's not extra work. It's the work that needs to be done because we have such a huge 
impact in terms of how we design experiences and what messages we send around who does and doesn't belong. And particularly when we're designing STEM learning experiences, there is a lack of diversity in STEM careers. There's a lack of diversity in STEM participation. And what we need, we know, is greater diversity in STEM, not only to meet the workforce demands, but also because we know that diversity is more likely to spur innovation. That when diverse lived experiences come together, new creative solutions happen that wouldn't happen otherwise. And so if we end up creating experiences for only children who already love science or only children of certain demographic groups or only children of certain lived experiences, we are narrowing who participates in STEM. And so in order to create a successful experience, we have to involve a really diverse audience in the development or else we're just not feeding their greater good that we're, we're trying to get our games to lead to. Right. Thanks so much for reminding me that it's not extra work. It's crucial work, right? It's absolutely <laughs> it's crucial. crucial. <laughs> right. And you have to think of it that way. And so often people will think of formative evaluation just in general as extra work. But the challenge is that if you don't do it, you don't end up having an impact in the end. And so you've then, I would say it was a lot of extra work to design the game in the first place that didn't end up having an impact. And so I think formative evaluation and the inclusion of diverse audiences in that development is essential. It's just as essential as the coding of the game in order to have the end results that we're looking to have, which is this, you know, greater participation in STEM. Right. And I love your term of impact too. Like you said, you're narrowing your audience to the point that you're only appealing to the people who are already interested. What is the impact of your game right at the end? Now you talked about how you've also taught at the Harvard School of Education. How has your experience in formative evaluation and data equity affected the way you teach the students there? One of my favorite aspects of teaching is the diversity of the students that are in the course. So many of the students are international and they're coming from such different backgrounds. And so thinking about their backgrounds is really important as I'm designing the learning experience. What's fun about the learning experience for me, and I've heard from the students that it's fun for them as well, is that the students are all studying real world projects throughout the semester. So they are conducting formative evaluations themselves of real world projects that are out there. And this again connects with those early experiences I had, which is that when you do things in an abstract form, you're learning about things theoretically, it doesn't always resonate with the learner as much as when you're engaging in concrete activities. So having the students you know, read about interviewing and read about participant observation and read about qualitative data analysis at night, but then come to the course and figure out how to practice that on their real world project, it's so much more meaningful. So throughout the semester, we talk about culturally responsive evaluation around data equity. And a lot of our conversation is preparing them for going out into the world. So when they are ed tech product developers, they're thinking about those aspects. You know, we've talked a lot about who is included in the study as part of data equity. And another really important piece is how we go about gathering the data. And for different cultures and different ethnic backgrounds, different types of data collection and different types of data analysis ring truer to the experiences of the participants. And so that's something we discuss a lot. And certain students might be from a more hierarchical culture and might feel more comfortable with more formal or structured modes of investigation. And that might be different than the participants. And certain groups might 
feel more accustomed to telling stories rather than filling out surveys. And so we, we talk about that piece. Another really important piece in the course that we talk about that affects their evaluations is also around inequities of status. And as Harvard students, so many of them are not thinking of themselves, they're thinking of themselves as students. They're above the undergrads because they're graduate students, but you know they're not professors. And so they think of themselves as kind of low rung on the ladder, but in broader society, Harvard means status. And so they have to be very careful as they're gathering their data, not to lead their participants to want to please them because of their status. And so we talk about all those things around, you know, who you are and what you're bringing, how you might think of yourself, but how others in the community might think of you and what that means for how you gather your data, how you establish a relationship with the participants and making sure that you're gathering data in a way that is respectful of whomever it is that you're trying to connect with. I love this. It's almost like seeing with one eye versus two, right? You're expanding their awareness of how every aspect of evaluation can impact the results. And have you seen like after they've taken the course, how that's transformed their thinking? One of the most fun aspects of teaching this course, and I've been teaching it for 10 years, is that many of the students are now coming back to me later on and offering up projects for the new set of students to conduct studies on. So I am able to interact with many of my former students, see how much they are embracing formative evaluation as a part of their practice. And then they're bringing that love of formative evaluation back to the new set of students. And so there's this wonderful cycle and community of students that are continuing to gather data from users as part of their development process to make things that are more impactful and reach a broader set of of learners. Love it. That's a beautiful feedback loop. (laughs) Now you're the CEO of Knowlogy. How will data equity impact your work in this new role? Sure. The mission of Knowlogy, what attracted me there is this idea of social science to make a better world. And so I feel like it's all set up around thinking about data equity. And so they're paying attention to who is heard as part of the development of so many different kinds of learning experiences, whether it's media or libraries or cultural organizations. They're also thinking a lot about how people are represented across all those different spaces, you know, what messages are sent and communicated about them. So there's a huge focus in on social justice. And because Knowlogy doesn't do anything alone, they're always partnering with other nonprofits. It's this great piece where these other nonprofits are also committed to issues of inclusion and social justice. And Knowlogy can work with them to gather the data that enables them to make their impact stronger. And so I feel like it is a complete connection between Knowlogy and its mission and this broader goal of data equity. Right. This sounds so much more broad. So I cannot wait to see the work you do there. And again, looking forward, how do you think data equity could impact the future of ed tech? I think I'm more scared about how the lack of data equity could impact the future of ed tech. I remember when educational technologies was really kind of in its first full-blown swing, you know, in late 90s and early 2000s. And there was so much promise, particularly because I've been working around the inclusion of people with disabilities for so many years. In the early 2000s, there's a lot written around how information technology was going to solve the 
problems related to access for people with disabilities because of the multimodal nature of information technology as compared to the book, there's so many more opportunities for learning for people with learning disabilities or people who are blind or who are deaf. And then what we saw was there's the potential of the technology, but then there's the actual implementation. And what happens with the actual implementation is we just reinforced existing inequities. And so I still think that ed tech has this great potential. If we design for inclusion of mind, if we involve users of diverse backgrounds in what we develop to create more equitable learning experiences. But if we don't do that, then we're just going to continue to reinforce the inequities that already exist within our school system, within our educational ecosystem as a whole. And so I think it's incredibly important. The other piece that is unique, I think, to EdTech is because data is so ubiquitous and because of the analytics, we can look just at those large data sets and not think about who is and isn't included in those data sets. And very often we don't know who isn't included in those data sets. And so we could think we know what's happening with our learners, but we don't actually know who those learners are and who's being included or excluded. So that I think is a, a danger area. And then the other one, of course, there's so much written about this around AI algorithms and how they're being designed to reinforce the existing biases. And as ed tech relies on them, then the underlying tools that we have at our disposal are also inequitable and again, could lead to those greater inequities. So I think there's great potential, again, for ed tech to change the nature of education and create more equitable systems, but we have to be looking at every single piece of the system in which we're working. It sounds like we need to basically start where your students start, where it's just the first step is just building the awareness of the inequity before we can really tackle what we could do with ed tech to solve that inequity, right? That's right. And having that awareness of where we could contribute to inequities enables us to look closely at what we're doing and make sure we're not repeating old mistakes, right? If we don't have the awareness at the outset, if we just go with the utopian view that ed tech is going to solve all problems, you can believe that it does unless you actually look to see what problems it's recreating and what problems it's solving. Right. Now, for someone who wants to get involved in data equity, what advice would you give them? What, what's a first step for them if they're going, hey, you know what, I do care about this and I want to apply this to the work that I do? There's a number of different organizations that are looking at data equity. Many of them are looking at it from the, these large data sets, which I think is important, right? Who's included in the data set, particularly when you're looking at machine learning or AI determines kind of how the systems respond. The other piece though that I think is really important is looking at culturally responsive evaluation practices. And the American Evaluation Association has a number of resources related to that, as do a number of other organizations, because it's not just about who's included in the data set, but how we actually think about the collection of data and making sure that those practices are ones that are honoring and respecting the diversity of lived experiences that exist in our society. Right. Yeah. So research again, awareness again. So <laughs> we'll definitely link some of those sites that you recommended in the episode description so people can check it out. Thank you so much, Christine, for sharing your expertise and just joining us here at the podcast. Thank you so much, Charlotte. I've had a great conversation. I really appreciate you inviting me. Thanks for listening to EdTech Adventures. 
Please subscribe to catch more of our episodes and leave a review to support the show. For more resources and info, visit us at codecombat.com podcast. I'm your host, Charlotte Chang. We'll see you on our next learning adventure.